I'm Nicole Kasperson, fintech journalist, and this is What the Fintech. As a journalist who has covered the finance sector over the last five years, I've had the opportunity to interview and engage with some of the best minds in the space. The media landscape is changing, and financial services is grabbing the attention of a more diversified audience than ever before. As a member of that growing demographic, I will provide direct access to the inner workings of a complex industry while bringing an unconventional perspective to news coverage. Leaving big bank earning reports to the boring traditional media firms, I'll focus on the tech-savvy apps, digital investing platforms, challenger banks, and payment giants to drive relevant content that looks forward to disruption instead of fearing it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of What the Fintech, a podcast for fintech professionals who want to shape the future of our industry with innovation and inclusion. I'm your host, Nicole Kasperson, and today I'm joined by Jackie Shebeck, co-founder and managing director at 1414 Ventures, a venture capital firm investing in early stage startups that are building the next generation of digital identity technology. As for Jackie, she's a 25-year C-suite leader with experience launching, scaling, and running businesses that go from startup to billion-dollar companies in revenue at firms like Staples, Fidelity, and TIAA. Basically, she's a total badass, and I'm excited to talk investing in digital identity infrastructure, wealth management, and female leadership with her. Jackie, welcome to What the Fintech. Thank you so much, Nicole, and I I love being called a a badass. It's it's not the first time. And I'm also hoping it's not the last. (laughs) (laughs) I I recently had someone on Twitter refer to what I do or myself as like badassery. And that was a new term for me. And so I got to add it to my to my resume, add it to my bio. But yeah, no, so happy that you are here with me. Tell me, where are you working from today? I'm in my home office uh, just outside of Boston. I'm going to apologize in advance. I've got a dog downstairs and some kids around the house. So if you hear a little bit of mayhem, it's just a normal day, <laughs> a normal day in my house. Right. Just just an average day. Uh, Say my cat has made a few appearances on my podcast already. So who knows? Uh, she she may come in. And but, you know, either way, we're, we're human. And that is kind of the uh, Absolutely. Inter- interesting aspects of working from home. But yeah, so to dive right in, your background is wildly impressive, as I said in my intro, from Harvard Business School to your decade-long career, decades-long career, scaling businesses we all know. I always like kicking off these convos with your values. What are the set of values that have been that common thread to keep you grounded throughout your successful career? Well, Nicole, you know, it's so interesting. I, I have to say a lot of it actually goes back to growing up. And uh, I'm the youngest of seven, so I just want to mention that because that really was very formative in you know my values and, and my approach to life and to business. I grew up with a very strong work ethic and a strong set of core values, and um, I would say that really the few that are kind of at the crux of who I am, uh, and I have I have these little sayings as a result of of these values. So the first one I would say is there are no shortcuts in life, like at least for 99% of us. So you have to work hard to achieve your goals. I tell my kids that all the time. The second thing is people matter above all things, respect and trust. You have to 
treat people with respect. Trust is earned, but once earned, you need to respect it. I also believe very much in being a lifelong learner. Being curious is actually the key to success in in a lot of ways, because you're constantly thinking of the ways that you can do things better, that you can make things more impactful. And that's, that's a great thing. This is squarely being flexible, squarely being the seventh in, in the family. I had to be flexible depending upon what was going on. I had to be flexible. And, you know, in business, I'd say that flexibility is just rolling with the punches. Sometimes you have to lead. Sometimes you have to follow. Sometimes you have to just figure out how to make lemonade out of lemons. That's a big part of life. And then finally, life is short. What goes around comes around. I'm a big believer in that saying, what goes around comes around. And if you do the right thing, your personal brand will develop a halo and that will be priceless in terms of its impact and uh, what it will do for you. Such amazing values and so well articulated. I think those are key points that any you know, fintech operator, VC, or anyone in this space, anyone in business can take away and think to themselves, how do I apply these to my own you know, leadership, my own business, whatever it is. And something that's just so important is kind of taking those past experiences that you've had and those lessons learned and how do you bring that into your future in fintech, in investing, and in whatever it is. And so I love that you apply all of those lessons learned especially with, you know, it's not all the time that you meet someone that is like one of seven children. What a, what a long, wild journey. That's for sure. Let me tell you. <laughs> what a wild journey. Well, it was not easy. Four sisters and two brothers. Woo! Believe me, it was. Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, that is. <laughs> um, but what that does is, you know, it. I love, I think the curiosity aspect as well and flexibility that you have to have when you have that many siblings. I have two older brothers, but there's only three of us, not seven, but you know, it does come with having to learn how to share things or having to learn how to mend yourself to other circumstances that don't always revolve around you. And I think a lot of leaders could, could take that away for sure. And it does kind of tie right into you leaving big corporate America to focus on investing in startups to pay it forward for that next generation of innovative companies. Talk to us through that decision and why it was so critical to you. I'm so glad you're asking that question because it's so interesting, right? A lot of people are scared, I think, to take chances and to take risks. I definitely take what I'd sort of call calculated risks. Like my life has always been about these calculated risks. And for me, stepping away from corporate America and, you know, jumping into the deep end of the pool not only with startups, but with a startup venture capital firm. I always joke with people, I'm a startup funding startup. <laughs> so it's, it's really uh, kind of the tip of the spear in a way. But for really me, it boils down to three things, opportunity, impact, and timing. And that's at least the framework and the lens I sort of think about things. So for me personally, I love challenges. I love trying new things. In my previous 25 years of experience, I moved around a lot. lot. That was really driven by my desire to constantly try something new, to take on a challenge and, you know, to really kind of be put to the test, if you will. My early days at Staples, ever since I worked for Tom Stenberg, the founder, I was very fortunate that he was my first boss there and I, I worked for him and, you know, he was a mentor I sort of joke, I 
I've been a closet entrepreneur since those early days. <laughs> and I knew that I wanted to do something on my own at some point, but it had to be the right thing and it had to be the right time. Mm-hmm. So why is that? Well, for me, you know, when making a decision like that, you kind of have to take your whole situation into account. And by the whole situation, I mean, you know, the last 20 years, my husband was or is a serial entrepreneur. And we have two kids. Our kids are now 15 and 18. But over the course of that time, it never seemed like the right time for both of us to be in the deep end of the pool and trying to take on all of that risk. However, back in 2019, when my partner and I first got this idea, uh, really was my partner's idea, and I kind of worked with him to validate it. But when we got that idea, it really boiled down to where was I in my life? Well, my kids were bigger, 15 and 18. My husband's business had actually grown to be a stable, bigger, it's still a startup, but still much more stable and, and much more, you know, less risky. And so with that piece of the equation settled, I looked at the opportunity, the digital identity market. I looked at venture. I looked at what we were thinking of doing. And I said, wow, you know, the team we can put together, the sector and the investment thesis, they all resonated. They all got validated. And then finally, I would say one thing about me, I don't know if this comes with age or I don't know if this is part (laughs) of one's DNA. But I'm a very introspective person. Maybe that does come with age. I reflect a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. when I go out to run three miles or usually when I'm, you know, doing that or in the shower, I, I think a lot. And one of the things that I thought about was, you know what, I don't want to look back and have any regrets. It's very important to me, you know, when I look back on my career I don't want to say what could have been or what if. And that was kind of one of those what if kind of moments. And so that was my calculus. Yeah, I love that. And I there's so much in there that I think is critical. You evaluated your personal life first before jumping into a new business. And I think that's something that we're seeing as we are all navigating the pandemic and our new normals is how do you, you know, first put your personal life at the top of your priority list as opposed to, nope, I'm just going to do this business thing just because, or just, I'm just going to grab, you know, onto this thing, but saying, Hey, like, let me reflect and think, okay, my kids are in a good place. My family's in a good place. Now is the time my home is in a good place. Exactly. Um, And not a lot of people, I feel like take the time to do that, or maybe just now taking the time to do that. Hence like the great resignation and great reshuffle. So that's right. I mean, what a important thing to do. And then also just we have it in common being super introspective because I am the same way. It's kind of what I love about like cardio or working out. I love having just this moment where it's just like me and my mind uh, and no one else bothering me, you know, to be able to say like to really think things through, you know, sometimes to a fault, but for the most part, it's a good thing. Right. And Yeah, maybe I'll get better at it. I completely agree. And I have to thank you, Nicole. Um, Family first. I guess that's a new value I need to add to the (laughs) list. (laughs) Exactly. It's it's kind of implicit, but you're right. It, It kind of was first on the list. And you have to put everything in perspective. 
And also, you know, I have to tell you one other funny little story. I was talking to a good friend from business school who's also an investor in my fund, by the way. And I was telling him about, you know, some opportunity I had many years ago to work at. I'm not going to say the name of the company, but it's one of the top few companies now in the world. We'll leave it at that. And, uh, and he said, Jackie, you know what? Gosh, we all have stories like that, right? I mean, you wouldn't be successful if you didn't have those opportunities that came, but honestly, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right situation. So it really is that it really is timing is everything. I think anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think the timing of what happened in your career when it comes to uh, Staples and helping the company grow to more than $1 billion in sales. Will you talk to us through the importance of those niche markets and the evolution of that from your time at Staples to today when there are way more companies catering or kind of going after those niche groups? So I joined Staples. It was actually the summer in between my first and second year of business school. I had been an investment banker before that, and I really wanted to do something different. I wanted to be in an operating environment. And at the time, I hadn't even heard of Staples. They had just, just IPO'd. And there was this opportunity to work for the founder and the CEO, Tom Stenberg, as uh, basically his strategy assistant. So it was putting together the five-year plan and figuring out the growth trajectory. And I got there and um, you know how in life, like it's so important that you know what you don't like as much as you also confirm what you do like. Well, I got there and just putting together this plan and seeing the opportunity in the market, I was so energized by it. I remember coming home and telling my boyfriend, who's now my husband, <laughs> wow, these guys set goals and they actually do what they say they're going to do. That's amazing, right? You think it's so simple, but yet it was so impactful. So I joined full-time and I was very fortunate. One of the first opportunities I got to do several years you know, into it was launch staples.com. Wow. Just for a little bit of context, I joined Staples when we were three, four hundred million in revenue. And over the 10 years, we grew it to 15 billion. Wow. Staples.com was nothing. We wrote the business plan and we launched it and we grew it to a billion in revenue within three years. Wow. It was the craziest thing. It was very chaotic, but I absolutely loved it. And, you know, I was reflecting back thinking that was like crazy back then, you know, yeah. 1999 or 2000, whatever, whatever the year was. And actually, even by today's standards, to have that kind of growth trajectory, I think is still pretty amazing. I don't think that many can actually grow that quickly. And we did it with a lot of barriers. And so I guess, to your point, niche markets back then, like e-commerce, you know, now we would really call that an emerging market. And by emerging, what I mean is it's the early, early days, in many ways, kind of like digital identity. It's the early, early days, but there's an opportunity for this to become transformative and truly huge and pervasive. You know, back then, it really was such a different world. There were so many more barriers. Yeah. Think about it. Back then, we were in Web 1.0. There was no <laughs> cloud. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no AI. There was no 
<laughs> a world and, a lot of us don't even know. Like what, a lot, a world, that world a lot of people don't even know. And and for me, like the biggest change that I see, which just makes being a startup, investing in startups so fun, is that now you've seen such a leveling of the playing field. And what I mean by that is all these tech advancements, now we have cloud platforms, we have digital platforms, we have mobile, we have Wi-Fi, we have really all of these tools that actually make the cost a fraction of what it once was, but then also have increased the speed. You know, when I think about how long it would take us to do things back then, and we were moving pretty quickly, and now, you know, what would take weeks, really now you can do in minutes. So the importance of niche markets are actually today's niche market is tomorrow's emerging huge blockbuster market. Right. I mean, scaling a business in the age of folks questioning whether the internet would work, right? Like we've all, especially in like Web3 days now, we're all kind of liking it back to the internet and seeing the, those old headlines. I mean, did you see headlines like that in the news at the time? Oh. And go like, oh, crap, what am I doing? Or like, can I tell you, uh, it, we'd have to do it offline. I could tell you a story. <laughs> when things went down and... It was like, don't look behind the curtain. Really, don't look behind the curtain. Yeah, no, I I do remember when sites used to go down quite often and things didn't work and we broke software because in a way, the businesses back then, really, we were pioneers, if you will. It was just early, early, early. Yeah, I mean, it's just so cool to have that experience and then to see, you know, fast forward to today and, and you having that knowledge and background, right, to be able to put that to the startups that you invest in today. Super lucky. I'm excited to dive more into that. But like between the adrenaline rush and uncertainty of startup life and the confidence and almost pressure of maintaining a billion dollar business or multi-billion dollar business, which is harder and why? And maybe which one makes you like more excited? I bet you can figure out which one makes me more excited. But <laughs> but you know what? No, in, in fairness, they're both really different. And I'm going to use a boat analogy. You know, the bigger company uh, running a big division, running a big publicly traded company, you know, that's like driving a tanker. And the startup is more like a speedboat. But see, running a big division or running, you know, a company as a CEO big company, multi-billion dollar, just it requires so much time for administration and gaining alignment of various constituencies across the matrix. And I say the matrix because truly in a multi-channel global environment, that's the way business gets done. Um, There has to be checks and balances, right? And you have to be an enterprise thinker and you have to be comfortable giving up speed for alignment, for risk management, and for consensus, for gaining consensus. In the startup world, which is more like the speedboat, right? Like for me, I spend my time, I joke, I'm chief cook and bottle washer. I do whatever needs doing. <laughs> and so I so on that end, you know, I spend a lot of time evaluating startups, looking at opportunities, 
looking at teams, a lot of time trying to assess the team and really determine their capability set and whether or not they really have what it takes to persevere, to, um, you know, to think on their feet and to pivot. I mean, everybody has has to have mastered the art of the pivot, right? <laughs> and that's actually the case too in a big company. You have to be able to do the pivot. You just, you have more time to do the pivot in the yeah, big company. Okay. In the small company, you got to be able to move quickly. Yeah. But um, so I spent a lot of time doing that. And then of course, fundraising, right? That that takes a lot of time and is critical. Not something I'd ever done before, but I've actually gotten pretty good at. So I guess for me personally, I actually think running the startup is easier, Mm. but I think that because of the experience I had previously launching, scaling, and growing these other businesses, because if I hadn't actually done that, being a startup investing in startups would be really hard Mm -hmm. because so much of it is um, really your experience being able to read and assess people and situations, and just sort of having a mental model for how you can determine whether or not, you know, you can run all the numbers you want, but you really have to be able to determine whether or not you're going to be able to produce the kind of return that a venture capital firm is expected to produce for their investors. So anyway, so that's where I come out on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's like more of a Um, initial like human element right to the startup side because you do have to kind of nurture those teams first in order to help them grow but so interesting to have like had kind of the the flip-flop experience right like okay being able to scale big businesses help me understand like the groundwork for helping a startup right that's pretty unique well remember I I also was very fortunate for me, even though I was in some really big companies and I did run multi-billion dollar P&Ls several times, there were several key experiences I had where I had to launch something new and grow it. So I I didn't mention like, for example, even at Staples, we grew staples.com in the US and then I got asked to go run launch staples.com internationally. So I got to do it all over again, you know, in languages I couldn't even speak. which was very interesting. But my point is, once you've gone through the gamut of the life cycle, you know, startup to growth to more mature, once you've gone through that, you get a real appreciation for the resources and the capability sets that are needed during those different phases. And a lot of that has just never left me. And I also have to say, I'm very fortunate that the years I spent at Fidelity, Fidelity is a phenomenal place when it comes to problem solving and just sort of being able to very succinctly and systematically size up a problem or an opportunity so that you can figure out how to capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was very fortunate. I feel like I I left Fidelity, at, you know, then going to TIAA with a really excellent framework and experiences while doing it that I still use today. I mean, I still really do leverage a lot of the tools, if you will, that I learned, you know, over the last 25 years to help me kind of suss out the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. And I'm excited to get into 1414 Ventures 
and learn more about how you kind of bring all of that background and those values into this. So will you explain more about why 1414 Ventures focuses on digital identity and the type of companies you're interested in investing in? So real quick, I'm just going to start with a quick definition of digital identity because not everyone knows what it is. So the way we define digital identity is really it's the high value transactional data or credentials that get captured, shared, and stored to either identify, authenticate, or authorize a transaction or interaction. The way we define the market, it really sits at the nexus of payments. So, you you know, if you were to draw like four circles, there's payments, there's cybersecurity, there's e-commerce, and there's marketing. And so digital identity is kind of like right in that sweet spot amongst all four of those. And really at the end of the day, like it's all about the data, right? Mm -hmm. And so we started looking at this back in 2019, really 20 was when we began the quest to to start the fund, had our first close uh, late 20, and then, you know, 21 pretty much finished uh, the rest of the fundraising and then began investing. But over that time frame, the acceleration of all things digital just took off. Like, like that had been the case before the pandemic, but mm-hmm. I feel like the pandemic like lit a it's fire. Like, mm-hmm lit a fire on everyone and really accelerated all of that. And so the need for better platforms and technology to support these new contactless virtualized business models became even more critical. So I have to say, like looking back in retrospect, our timing is is really quite quite good in that regard. For me, the opportunity really boiled down to a few things. First, the size of the market. We actually have a matrix where we sized the market. And according to our definition, it's 612 billion. We've got 50 subsegments. In fact, Nicole, I think since I last spoke to you, we added a new subsegment. We were at 49, now we're at 50. Hey. <laughs> we, we added data privacy, which is a really big it's- area. And then um, I'd say the other two big items that really drove my decisioning for 1414 was my own personal passion. As I mentioned, I love building, I love creating and launching new products, new platforms. I love partnering and helping people. So I was excited about the impact we could have. And then finally, third, I would say is our model. What I really like about our model is it's really got two components. So because we're investing so early stage pre-seed and seed, We really entered into this saying, you know, capital is a commodity. The best way to really help these companies is to provide capital, but also hands-on expertise. Mm -hmm. And hands-on expertise is everything from mentorship, collaboration to, you know, really just providing operational know-how, if you will, to help these companies improve their growth trajectory And so for us, um, you know, we've made six investments thus far, and um, they really run the gamut of digital identity. So I would say no surprise, uh, some are in areas of what I would call device intelligence and IoT. Others are in the areas of um, authentication, which is super critical in fintech and financial services more broadly. 
um, identity access management. There's uh, a really cool company that we invested in that is actually in that space and has a really great platform that's really suited for the return to work and for helping the hybrid work environment. And then, of course, you know, digital wallets and data privacy and security. Those are also areas we really like. And we have companies in our portfolio that are leveraging technology, technologies related to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. From from seeing uh, Web 1.0 <laughs> to all the way to Web 3 and being a part of the whole ride and, and helping startups and companies all in between that grow and scale. I'm so excited to ask you more about that. But I do want to first ask about digital identity. And basically what you're saying is digital identity and the data underneath that is the linchpin of how businesses happen. And it's so funny because it's something that, you know, we like use every single day that we maybe don't even realize, right? And that's kind of something that that's um, right. is so interesting to even fintech, right? Like I have friends that are like, fintech, what's that you do there, Nicole? And I'm like, well, let me show you your phone. Can I see your phone, please? And I'll like say that app, that app, that app is fintech and you use fintech. Right. Like, and it's so crazy, like how people don't always, you know, connect the dots with what's going on just in all of their technologies. But anyway, um, but I do want to ask um, about some of the key areas you're interested for that next wave of innovation in this space. You know, are we moving beyond just like facial recognition type digital identities? You know, what what is kind of for a lack of a better word, your crystal ball showing you. <laughs> so yes, I mean, biometrics is amazing, of course, but it's so funny. There was a company we looked at very recently in the uh, psychometrics space, which is beyond just like your behaviors. It gets to your, you know, your intent like how you're wired to do what you're doing and your propensity. So anyway, there's some really cool things. But I would say that, you know, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with bringing up Web 3.0, right? I think Web 3.0, this whole idea of greater decentralization and being able to provide even more transparency and at the same time being able to take data you know, we have to start talking about data beyond big data. Mm-hmm. We're probably at least at, you know, big data 3.0 as well, right? I mean, being able to take big data and AI and machine learning and being able to now deploy that in ways to basically, I'm all about like leveling the playing field, right? Like giving people access to services and to products that can improve their standard of living. And so I'll just give you one little example of a company we recently invested in that I love because it's where digital identity and fintech meet. So there's a company we invested in uh, in Colombia that actually uses uh, identity graphs instead of FICA scores, typical credit underwriting, because the data is not good uh, in that country to do that. And the whole objective here is because, you know, in that particular country, 97% of the people don't have access to loans, to lending. And so the platform that this company's created 
basically allows people through their employer, so it's lending as a benefit, to get access to capital so that they can buy really basic things. And so their standard of living goes up. They also get financial access to financial education and and financial literacy as a result of this process. And, um, you know, it's a win-win. So I just, I mentioned that one because it's a great example of digital identity, fintech intersection, but then also the power of helping people and raising access for everyone and making money at the same time too. Mm-hmm. So it's a win-win. Yeah. Well, and it's like the one of my North Stars, I guess I have multiple North Stars, but one of the main thesis of what the fintech and what I'm doing with the brand is to say, hey, like we have the maturing technology for everyone to win. So why aren't we using it and placing it in the where it needs right so and i think internationally that is such such a critical component of that we don't always realize here in the u.s how fortunate we are to have so much financial services at our fingertips because that is not what is happening um you know across waters and so i love that you're identifying that and you leveraging you know the work that you do to help with that and i love that you bring that example up because it's you know one it's great to just have an example of how, you know, what you're doing and digital identity is incorporated into, you know, decentralization and the web three aspect of it. But yeah, to give like a tangible action item to this is, uh, I think so critical. And I think the audience is really going to, to resonate with that because it's why we're all here in fintech, right? Is to like help is to, to level that playing field, to make things better for everyone. And why not when we literally have like the most vast technology than we ever had before to make it happen. That's absolutely right. And and to your point, you know, if we didn't have the technology that we have today, there's no way I would even be able to make an investment in a company not here in the United States, right? It would be cost mm-hmm. prohibitive. But what's so great about well, what's so great about you know, the technologies we have now is that you really can conduct the due diligence and do all the things you need to do remotely, the mm-hmm. way even the way you and I are speaking now. And that, in a sense, levels the playing field because there's much greater access to capital that people previously wouldn't have had access to because it would have been too hard just logistically even meet up with them. So it's great that our norms are changing and that behaviors are changing and that technology is helping to enable this. Right, exactly. And I mean, is the incorporation of, I mean, yeah, I imagine that the incorporation of like blockchain is a huge player in this, right? You know, it's funny. I moderated a panel for Boston's FinTech Week on decentralized finance, right? DeFi. I just wanted to say that because I wasn't sure everybody knows what DeFi is. <laughs> but um, but it was really cool because I look at a lot of blockchain companies. There there are several that were um, several were evaluating right now. In fact, but even at that panel that I led the discussion on, we had two. But both both companies really cool companies. One is blockchain based in healthcare. They're using blockchain to basically wring out the cost in healthcare related to multiple records 
for one individual, right? So think about that use case. Very easy to understand. I know it is hard to do, but they're doing it. So that's really cool. And then the other one, the other blockchain example was the uh, insurance claims and being able to use blockchain to speed up the processing of insurance claims to me, that's like a perfect use case. And so to me, like with blockchain, I really think, you know, we're beyond the phase of, oh, this is sort of interesting. Mm -hmm. Now it's really about adoption and applying the technology to the right use cases. Because, you know, there there definitely are um, some use cases where I think it wouldn't be a perfect fit, but there are many use cases where uh, the transparency, the distributed ledger, you know, the trust, if you will, and then the speed part and just eliminating the middleman. Like there are just so many cases that you can look at where it just, it's the perfect use case for disruption, but it delivers increased transparency, speed, and efficiency. And I love that you use an example like healthcare because the communication factor is what can be challenging with blockchain and yes. moving forward with actual adoption of it, right? Or like seeing mass adoption. We have to, and, it, and this is the same for cryptocurrencies, you know, and 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 just that uh, using that more as opposed to fiat currency. You know, we have to get to the point where we're expressing to you know the mass audience, to so the everyday consumer, these very real use cases that will actually impact them every day, you know, and it not seeming like something that is only for a certain, you know, group of people or people that only understand it or people that are rich or whatever. Like, I think there's just so much stigma around blockchain and the future of what it can really do to help. So to like communicate those very real everyday uh, use cases is Mm -hmm. just so important. And so, yeah, I love that you did that. But yeah, I I also want to talk a little bit about your SPAC or Special Purpose Acquisition Company, Everest Consolidator Acquisition Corp, which is focused on investing in the wealth management space. Very cool. I actually think the wealth management space does have a lot to do with the uh, that mass adoption of blockchain and Web3. But anyways, out of all the industries you could have focused on with the SPAC, what was it about the wealth management and the future of innovation that led you toward that industry? No, it's it's a great question. So I'll just, I'll hit on a couple of points because, you know, these might be facts that people know, but are really good to keep these front and center. So frankly, I'd say the demographic trends and the money in motion is a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is, you know, we're living right now during what people have termed the great wealth transfer, right? So there's 70 trillion in assets that are moving from one generation to the next. And the money in motion makes a huge opportunity for different constituencies in the marketplace because it's been proven. And I'm so lucky. I was at Fidelity when we were doing some of this work. Typically, about two thirds of the people who ended up who end up inheriting the wealth, they change advisors or they change Mm -hmm. investment managers. And so that creates an opportunity for other segments of the market. And so for me, the particular segment that I think has tremendous opportunity are these next generation platforms. Exactly what you've been talking about, these um, 
digital advice, tech-enabled platforms that really enable people to interact digitally, that actually make advisors, you know, if there's an advisor in the relationship, much more efficient, much more scalable, giving them the tools to uh, basically meet people where they are, right? Let them interact the way they want to interact. Mm -hmm. So that's very exciting to me. I think that segment is really well positioned while this money in motion is sort of up for grabs, if you will. And then finally, you know, as part of that, tech is also enabling the evolution of advice and planning. You know, that's near and dear to my heart because I was actually at Fidelity and worked on the launch of the first retirement income planning tool quite a while ago. I think it was 15 years ago at this point. And it's amazing to me to see how far everything has come from, you you know, that web 1.0 version of it, if you will, right? Now, things are just so much more usable, much more frictionless. And it's exciting because there's an opportunity to, you know, really get behind some of these emerging and more well-established platforms and kind of put the pieces together to really make something that would be very compelling to this next generation of investors. And then finally, I would be remiss if I didn't mention ESG. Mm-hmm. I feel like people now, I mean, I I have always felt this way, but there really wasn't a language or a vernacular for it. And now I feel like we're getting the language for this. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the early days, investors were really focused on the value of their portfolio. I mean, yes, the value of the portfolio matters, but really what matters is how your values are driving the impact of that portfolio. And so I think it's an exciting time. We're, we're probably in the first inning mm-hmm. of how ESG will get operationalized into the end-to-end advice and planning process. So that's very exciting to me. And being able to be a player in this, you know, helping to create a company or, or help to create a situation that really does enable people to have their needs met is exciting to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, like hitting the nail on the head. And it's why I cater so much of my content as well to the wealth tech space because and wealth management, because even though a sliver of what fintech does, I do think it's the sliver that has one of the biggest rooms to grow. There's so much white space left in wealth management that fintech hasn't even touched yet. And I think that uh, investors like yourself and um, others out there are just now getting right. We're in that first inning. And you know, of course you have to mention ESG because if we're focusing on that next generation that is uh, inheriting wealth, that is what they care about. Like gone are the days of like, are you a good stock picker, uh, financial advisor or robo advisor? Or are you, you know, what is my return? It's more about how are you allocating certain aspects of my portfolio so that it is representative of me or investing in companies that I believe in. And that just like changes everything, right? It changes like, the value proposition of a financial planner, of a financial advisor. It changes that relationship between 
the app or that robo advisor or whatever it is it yeah and it's completely influential and it's actually like the grounds that i you know, I'll go out and speak too on helping uh, wealth managers or financial advisors kind of understand how to build their tech stack or understand the changing terrain and why they have to pay so much attention to fintech. And that is one of like the core aspects of it. So I love that we're aligned. I feel very validated because of that. So I'm glad glad the knowledge I've been spitting out there is, is on point uh, with you because, I mean, it's like, how can we not just be thinking about this all the time? This is literally totally. the future. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so when it comes to like the sections of wealth management that make you the most excited, I mean, is that like is kind of helping ESG scale? Is that what maybe makes you the most excited? And I guess how do we kind of keep seeing that play out? Because I guess right now ESG still feels like something special, right? Or like almost like Mm -hmm. still feels like a niche when really I think- I was just going to say, yeah, using one of your words, it still feels (laughs) like a niche, but I think it's an emerging, I think it's an emerging segment. Um, I have no doubt it'll be big. I mean, I get excited about financial planning and advice, digital advice specifically. Financial literacy is also something that means a lot to me. I've, you know, there've been plenty of times where I've tried to help next generation people, you know, really understand the ABCs and the one, two, threes of, of not even investing, just saving and how to think about, you know, managing your money. So uh, financial literacy is big. And then of course, tools, I feel like you've got to have tools available for people, right? And it's never a one size fits all. Some people will want to read a book. Some people will want to have a little widget to play with. Other people want to be able to listen to uh, a webcast or Mm -hmm. a podcast or, you know, they'll just they'll want to listen in on something and kind of take it in in small consumable bites. Others, you know, they're happy to go read a, a book that'll take, you know, eight hours. So it's any, whatever the tools are, it's, you know, like I, you got to meet people where they are. So that's what's exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that gives a sense of like the kind of companies in the wealth management and wealth tech space that you'd be interested in, right? Like ones that can kind of scale those tools in a way to almost help with that, you know, more mass adoption. Cause obviously we've seen, and the, another reason why wealth management and the wealth tech space is so exciting is because of just the shift that we've seen because of the pandemic. People are finally interested in managing their money. And now they're like, okay, where are these tools? Like, how can I actually do this? And so, you know, what room for, you know, more emerging fintechs to come in and say, you know, here is some real ways to do it. And I think some of like the banking apps are trying to work on it, but I think there's still just so so much room for maybe a startup to maybe one of the Jackie lines to be able to... (laughs) I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, I think you're right. The big, the big thing with the pandemic is it kind of cemented the shift to digital first, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's gotta be no matter what business you're in, even if you have brick and mortar, you got to lead digitally because right now people, people just aren't going out to meet with people in person. I mean, very to the extent they did previously, but yeah, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. 
Well, I'm so excited to see the kind of companies that you invest in and to see the kind that you help grow and scale. I'm sure we'll all be hearing about them in um, the near future. But um, talking a little bit about uh, inclusion here at What the Fintech, because we love that and it is so critical to the success of the future of fintech. You spend a lot of time mentoring as well, which is so important to bringing more women and different kinds of people into the fintech and VC space. Will you share maybe a memorable moment or story that was rewarding yeah. when mentoring uh, folks? So I should also just mention, I, I also do angel investing too. <laughs> so personally, outside of the fund, and that is where, I mean, that is where I actually, I do a lot of my own personal fintech investing on my own because the fund is, you know, oriented towards digital identity. But to your point around, you know, mentoring and, and a fun moment, I have many moments, but I have to say one thing that I really miss, I am fortunate in that I belong to a few different organizations where, you know, they really walk the talk in terms of sort of helping, paying it forward and helping the next generation. And so one of the organizations actually hosts annually an event called Women Opening Doors for Women. And it's the International Women's Forum, which I'm a part of. And it's a great event because I typically invite three to five of my mentees and all the other people invite three to five of their mentees. And you get everybody together and it's sort of cross-pollinization. But the moment that I really miss is when we're all together. I have pictures of these previous events. And it's fun to look back at the pictures and kind of remember when we could do these things in person. So I think for me, it really is, you know, the memorable moment, if you will, is probably when we were all at the table having dinner and... um, you know, sort of doing our cross-pollinization thing, but we were in the same physical room. That's kind of what I miss. Well, and just to see a room filled or a table filled uh, of women, right? I mean, that is rare in our space. The uh, amount of conferences... Um, more so in my, you know, when I first started out in my career that I would attend. And I remember like for the, when the, one of the first times I ever went to like an executive meeting and I was so excited. I was like, oh, sweet. I got invited to the executive meeting. And I sat at just whatever the first open table and I, the big speech was happening and I like looked around and I was like, oh man, wait a minute. I was like, where are the women? I, and I literally am just like the, one of the only ones I like stuck out like a sore thumb and then, oh, yeah. yeah, and there's photo, like I have photos of it too from when the photographer at the event was running around and I'm just like, oof, those photos are a little rough. But there, fast forward, you know, to today and we're, we're seeing some change. So, uh, and seeing more women involved and, you know, a lot of that does have to do with the work that you're doing, right? And that's super critical to moving that needle on the rather disappointing stats around yeah. women that receive VC funding. So talk to us a little bit about how the companies you're involved with are helping get more money into the hands of female founders and have more women in the venture capital decision-making process. It's a great question. And I mean, the numbers are, you know, I think in 2021, we still haven't seen the final final, but I think the numbers are a little bit better, but Mm -hmm. they were so bad to begin with when it's like two and a half percent. It's like a rounding error. But so two things. So first of all, even at 1414, 
we have four general partners. One of the other general partners is a woman. So woohoo, like 50% of our little group are women, which is great. So that's one thing. One of my mentees is actually an intern at 1414. She's um, a junior in college. (laughs) So I'm getting them young so I can teach them the ropes so that they can go off and uh, be a future badass. And then, um, you know, as I mentioned, it's really funny. I was thinking about this. A lot of the um, angel investments I do are in women-led businesses, and they do happen to be, you know, fintech. Not all fintech, but a lot of them are either fintech or renewable, climate-oriented. Awesome. Areas where I feel there are big, big honking problems, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it'll take a woman to figure it out, right? So- So that's part of it. And then, of course, you know, it's interesting what I've noticed since we've had our fund, you know, we definitely it's true, like we attract more startups where women are either the founder or a co-founder. And so we're actively looking. There are businesses under consideration, you know, right now that are female led you know, which is great. So I'm, I'm sure that, you know, part of our portfolio will include some businesses where women are, women are investors or sorry, are, are the founders. Sorry. So it's exciting to me like that. That's how I'm thinking about it. And I also just think like really, you know, helping to support however it is, whether it's through angel investing or whether it's through the fund or, you know, whether it's through some of the things we've started to do or um, we've started to sponsor, you know, some pitch competitions. Those are all avenues to help cultivate. It's really around explaining how this whole thing works, whether it's venture capital or fintech. And then it's explaining, uh, you know, why you can be successful, you know, as we've been talking, it's all about removing barriers, providing access and providing transparency. Exactly. Beautiful, beautiful way to wrap up our conversation. I love that. And thank you so much for the work you're doing because it is so important. Thank you so much, Jackie, for joining me. I do want to just get your final thoughts. The last question I like to ask my guests to wrap it up, please tell us what the F we can expect from you and 1414 next. Wow. Well, let's see. What the F? Well, uh, I would say that um, I think you can expect us to uh, be backing some of these next generation platforms. Um, Personally, I hate passwords. So I'm hoping that maybe, (laughs) maybe we'll ignite the match that once and for all eliminates passwords and just makes interacting digitally that much easier, more secure, and better. So we'll see. What the F, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I love it. That was such a great answer. Thank you again, Jackie, for joining us. That is a wrap on this episode of What the Fintech. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you loved this episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button. You can find me on all your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time, talk to you soon.